Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Unknown. And our author, Jack Smith, joins me from Connecticut. Sir, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for inviting me. You have a varied background in um, oh, in all types of uh, management, uh, leadership style, this kind of thing. But for some reason, you decided, after you retired from general traditional work, you decided you wanted to be an author. How did that come about, Jack? Well, it started when I was a freshman in college, which goes back 67 years. I was taking an English lit course, and I... Uh, just really enjoyed what I was reading, and I made up my mind at that time that I wanted to write a story. And uh, I didn't expect to become a, uh, an Edgar Allan Poe or, a, 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 you know, a Shakespeare or um, any of the classic writers. But I, I wanted to, I wanted to put my thoughts to, to paper. Most most first-time authors will uh, will do a bio. They'll do a biographical sketch of their life. This story, The Unknown, is not that type of book. It actually is a fictional work. Is any of the content of this book, which I believe is a murder mystery and has a little romance thrown in, uh, does that take any of the story of your personal life and incorporate it? Well, not directly, but possibly indirectly. I... Um uh, as you mentioned, I was in the business community, and I live in Madison, Connecticut, but I had an office in New York City, which is important. Uh, and uh, uh, as a result, uh, and I was worked in New York for 14 years, and as a result of my exposure to the people in New York City, I uh, met all kinds, and uh, as a result of that, I tried to steal things that I learned from these people and applied it to the story, but not directly with any specific person uh, in mind. Did you keep any... In other words, they're all figments of my imagination. All all figments of your imagination. Did you use any contemporary notes? I mean, did you journal any of the uh, adventures that you experienced in New York City, or was this something that you just finally had accumulated enough material intellectually and uh, creatively, and sat down and began to write the story? Actually, um, well, that deserves two answers. Uh, The plot itself is a fiction, and it is uh, primarily uh, my own creative juices working on that. However, uh, the one thing that I was having a great deal of difficulty, and this might be of interest, one thing I was having a great deal of difficulty with, I knew I wanted to write a murder mystery with uh, that would blend violence and romance, a lot of intrigue and the unsuspecting. And, uh, they, and yet I didn't know what the central theme would be. And that was critical to me because I didn't want this to be a typical cops and robbers story. I wanted it to be something different that people, if they read it, they might carry it away with them and think of it at some future time if somebody said, you ever read a book that you enjoyed? And they would think of something about the unknown that they liked. That's uh, that's really wishful thinking, possibly, but that's the way I looked at it. Oh, yeah, anyway, I, uh, I didn't have this theme, and one day, I live in Madison, Connecticut, which is about 90 miles away from Manhattan, and every morning I would take a train from the New Haven Union Station into Grand Central Station. Mm-hmm. And then I would walk to my office, which was at 42nd and Broadway. And one day when I was walking to my office, I stumbled over a sign that was on, a, on the sidewalk that said, learn the secrets of your future, walk to apartment such and such on the second floor, and let the unknown become known or words to that effect. Uh-huh. And I was going to an appointment, so I ignored the sign, and I went on and 
carried that on, and several times thereafter, while I was walking back and forth on Broadway, I again saw the sign, but for one reason or another ignored it. And then finally one day at lunch, I, and if you looked at me, you'd say you'd understand why I say this, I decided that I could afford to uh, forgo lunch, and I went to the second floor, and I knocked on the door, and a lady came to the door, and she was a psychic. And she introduced me to tarot cards. And uh, she gave me my one and only reading on it. But I was so fascinated with the way she presented it, not so much what she told me about myself, but the, the procedure that she went through as the reader and me as the clearant, uh, or the querent, rather, uh, of the procedure that she went through. I uh, went home and I... Uh, started buying books on the subject, and I bought several books, one by Cassandra B., another by Paul Quinn, another by Amy Zinner and Monty Farber, and also studied the, uh, uh, the Internet and uh, familiarized myself with tarot because I thought, you know, this might be an interesting central theme from which I could, could create my book. And uh, that's the way that all came about, actually. You've described yourself as a, uh, a perpetual or obsessive worker, uh, you know, almost a uh, someone that uh, when they start a project doesn't want to quit until it's finished. Did this book uh, occupy all of your thinking processes and time for a, an extended period, or how long did it take? Well, I answer that in two ways. Uh, one, I say it took me... Uh, uh, it took me actually 67 years, and I'm going back to my freshman year when I decided that I really wanted to write a book. But in actual writing, I guess um, maybe seven months, although I didn't, I wasn't devoted to it from the time I got up until the time I went to bed. I would uh, work on it a couple of hours, and then I'd go about doing other things, and so it was on again, off again. But interestingly enough, my wife frequently would wake up in the middle of the night, and she'd reach over, and I wouldn't be at my bed, and she'd come uh, down to my office, which was in the bottom of our home, and uh, she'd see me over the computer, and she'd say, what are you doing? And I said, I woke up, and I had this idea, and I just got inserted in the story. So <laughs> uh, off and on, uh, there's, uh, there are a lot of stops and starts that have gone on in the completion of this book. And I guess if I were to guess, and it would be really a rough guess, I'd say maybe six or seven months to write it. Describe your main characters. Are they uh, people that we are going to be able to identify with? Well, the one, that's, um, uh, there are several elements to my story that I really like, and one I've already mentioned, the tarot cards. But the other, uh, and there are other elements besides that, but one of the most important are the characters. I have a variety of characters in the uh, in the story. The story revolves around a woman who is becomes the heroine, and it starts out when she's an infant. And uh, let me give you a little background on her and what this does, and then uh, it'll also bring into play some of the other characters. Fabulous. But, she is. She's an infant, merely days old, five, six days old, and she is crammed into a cardboard box and taken and thrown into a slum alley dumpster where she is supposed to die, be trucked away, and forgotten. Uh, however, she survives, and she survives because there are two people that... Uh, come into her life. The first is a woman who witnesses all of this and goes to the dumpster and has her retrieved from it. And that woman is a, a street walker, a homeless person in New York City who is a tarot card reader. Hmm. And I mention that because I have a lot of homeless people as minor characters in this. She happens to be one of the two major ones. Her name is Dora, and she has an associate, a fellow that we will call Doc, who was once a prominent physician, but became decertified through a medical malpractice, and when he lost his certification, 
he became relegated to the streets. And the two of them become primary to this young gal. And they take her, and although they are not married, Doc and Dora are not married and have no romantic relationship at all, uh, they raise Stacy, who is the, uh, the name of the heroine, raise Stacy as their adopted daughter. And I put adopted in quotes mm-hmm. because they're not married. And um, uh, when, they, uh, when they do this, uh, they... Uh, Decide, uh, they find out that they are, that the assassins who had attempted to kill uh, Stacy when she was an infant uh, find out that she's alive and they start searching for them. So these three go to Saratoga Springs and they team up with a very shady, disreputable racehorse gambler who becomes a prominent character in this book also. And the four of these spend 25 years uh, fleeing around cities, Chicago, Washington, D.C., New York, uh, Miami, uh, trying to avoid these assassins who are out to kill this woman for a secret that she possesses that she doesn't know. In fact, when she was discovered by Doc and Dora, she was nameless. She had no, uh, uh, she had uh, no relationship to anybody, and so her heritage is something that is completely unknown to her. In fact, it isn't until when she's about 25 years of age that she learns for the first time that Doc and Dora are truly not her biological parents. And that adds a little bit of uh, unexpected suspense to the story because she now becomes curious as to her heritage. This is but, an interesting premise. Is this set in contemporary times, or is this uh, kind of cover a, a, no, a number of decades? No, it's contemporary times. I would say uh, if you're, uh, you're going to be talking about uh, the mid-'80s uh, uh, um, to... Uh, 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 for going up 25 years to about 2017, uh, 2012 or 13. So about about current times. It's current times. Yes. Is there there an incident in this book, besides the one you've just described, that uh, is going to grab the reader and really get their attention? The first two chapters I uh, uh, have grabbed. In fact, fortunately, this is... uh, uh, there have been very few people, well, there have been friends who have read the book, but there are very few unknown people who have uh, read the book that I know of that have gone on Amazon or anything like that, but several of them have, and uh, they've commented about the fact that it was a story that grabbed them, that held them from the, from the opening words to the final paragraph. And part of the reason is because this heroine who has this unknown secret that is drawing these murderers to finish her off, even as a young adult at the age of 25, uh, that that pretty much holds the people, uh, the reader to the book. But also the characters that she becomes involved with, Common people, many, many street people. I, I spent so much time in New York City, and I became, well, I can't say I became friendly with street people. I got to know some indirectly because, you know, you give them a tip and you talk to them and you see them daily and all that kind of stuff. And so I kind of stole identities from these people and added them to the street people that I have in the, in the story. But in addition to those street people and having a shady racehorse gambler and uh, a tarot card reader and a former physician, I also have a, an attorney that uh, is a former tennis pro. And I mention this because tennis and uh, ocean swimming become critical to the uh, plot. So there's, and, some, there's uh, some mystery you've, they, uh, mystery uh, you've thrown in here. The tennis pro yeah. is... Uh, 
a young man, and he's an attorney now, and he and Stacy become uh, close friends, not only as a coach and as a student uh, in tennis, but they become, they date a lot and all of this type of things. It, her tennis becomes so important to her, and she becomes a ter- tournament tennis player. In fact, I mentioned some of the cities. One of the one of the places that uh, takes a an important um, part of uh, the plot is Bermuda. Uh, she uh, goes to Bermuda to enter an international tennis tournament, and uh, uh, some very exciting, unexpected. I'll say, quote, violent, end quote, events take place in Bermuda that uh, I think will um, uh, draw the reader's interest if they like mysteries and they like the unexpected and they like a little violence and romance. Well, Jack, what you've described is a very fast-paced novel for 300 and some pages. So the title of it, again, is The Unknown. Our author, Jack Smith, has joined me from the Northeast in the United States of America. Jack, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? It's available in any bookstore in, uh, in the country, although it may not be on the shelves. But they can go to any bookstore and they can order it because the publisher is Ex Libris. And Ex Libris will ship to any bookstore in the country. Uh, one major account of Ex Libris happens to be Barnes and Noble, and so Barnes and Noble has it on their records and may have some books around uh, on the shelves too. Uh, my biggest my biggest challenge, and uh, this is key and critical to me, but my biggest challenge is taking. I mean, I'm an, actually a John Smith, but I, that's just too common, so I go by Jack. I know and, the feeling. But at taking, and if you look on, if you look at books that are written by Jack Smith, you'll find an arm's length title of a lot of different genre by a lot of different Jack Smiths. So taking an un, uh, taking a common name like Jack Smith for a new author who had has not had any prior public exposure before uh, and making my book known to them is an uphill challenge and uh, you know hopefully through you and uh, interview and some other marketing things that I have going on the uh, book will be uh, read I think it's a good story I think it's well written and I think if people like mysteries and they like intrigue and they like to try to outguess where the author is going with his plot. They're going to be challenged to the point that they will keep turning the pages until they get to the final period. Fabulous. Thank you for sharing your background story into this. And they can do a search, uh, besides your name, Jack Smith, they can also do a search under the title of the book, The Unknown. Thank you for sharing your story today. Thank you very much for the call. I really do appreciate it, My pleasure. And I look forward to talking to you in the future about your next uh, installment on whatever novel you produce. So thank you again for sharing. is going to be uh, interesting from the standpoint that it's going to be entirely different genre and uh, already it's uh, into the works. I look forward to visiting with you again when the next project is released. For Ex Libris Audio, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Get ready to live la bella vita. With Dawn Catherine on Toginet.com. Live La Bella Vita. If you're wanting to know all the beauty tricks of the trade and the latest fashion trends before everyone else, this is your show. If you admire celebrities' beauty and their fashion sense, this is your show. Do you love wine and want to know more about the process it takes to make wine from the vine to the bottle? This is your show. Live La Bella Vita. For more on the show and your host, check out our website, LaBellaVitaCosmetico.com. This is the kind of show you can sink your teeth into. If you enjoy traveling and food and family, all with an Italian flair, then you can live La Bella Vita with your host, Dawn Catherine. Wednesday nights at midnight, 11 p.m. Central on Toginet.com.
Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book today is titled Sun Path. Author Marsha Prock joins me from Missouri to share the background into how this book got written. Welcome, Marsha. Hello to you today, Jay. You know, good to visit with you. And uh, I wanted to find out more about your book and a little of your background. Uh, have you always been an author, or is this something new to you? No, I've always written, but I have been an English and a literature teacher at high school and college levels, so I wrote a short story that an editor got back to me and said, could you expand this into a novel, perhaps a juvenile novel? So I took my story later and started reworking it. How, how long ago did that happen? Uh, how long has the process been in place? Well, uh, 10 years ago, they were ready to buy a finished book, but 10 years ago, a lot of things happened in my life, and um, I just didn't have the time to sit down and write it. I was too involved with my own children and teaching other children, and when I had time to write it, it went very quickly, because my characters are very definitive, and they told their own story. Your main characters, uh, explain for my listening audience the inspiration behind their names and how this story came together. Well, at first, the first story was about a girl and a horse, and the truth is, I taught juveniles and I taught literature for a long time, and there was a great many writers like Gary Paulson, who wrote Hatchet, that appealed to boys. They grabbed this book about a boy surviving in a wilderness, and they were always male characters. And I was thinking, girls do. I did, and I knew girls who did wonderful, adventuresome things. Why can we not have a female in an adventuresome role? So I built my character, Charity, upon uh, old stories from the Kentucky Mountains, which tell of the Melungeon people. And that name, Melungeon, is one that's been lost through the years. But they were found in the mountains of Appalachia, they had been here since the time of Columbus. Hmm. They were white-skinned, and they were speaking English and believed in Christ long before Daniel Boone went through the gap. Fascinating. And how did you discover this bit of American history? Well, I'm an omnivorous reader as well as a writer, so as I was writing and doing research and traveling to Kentucky and Tennessee, I kept picking up names like Mullins and Collins and everything, and they'd say, oh, they're hill people, they're dark people. And some of them were dark-skinned, but mixed in with these people that stayed in the hilltops of the uh, the Appalachians, there were also blonde, blue-eyed people, and they have never been historically explained, although I have referenced in my uh, the end of the book, the books that I use for research. The Melungeons are thought of as a lost minority group in America. So when Charity is taken down from the mountains by an uncle through the death of her mother and father, she runs into all the things that happen to um, what we call racial minorities. The Melungeons were racial minorities. And when she also very realistically, and I find knew this from the girls that I taught, encounters sexual abuse at the hands of her uncle, she runs away. She tries to run away on the horse her father had brought from Virginia, and she had ridden and trained. She loses the horse in her escape, but she's picked up by another minority in the forest who she decides to follow, and he's a half-Osage boy trying to get back to Missouri Territory in the year 1809. Historical novel in its uh, concept, and uh, fictional totally in its content? Absolutely. Absolutely. The name Charity came from a wonderful student I had that loved horses and would have done the same thing at every point. But she finds her strength traveling with us. You know, the minorities built America. We have all the big television productions. We have all the literature about the men who made America. And they were all white men. No, that's not so. The minorities were also moving, and in cases like Charities and the Osage Boy, they were trying to get to a safe place, a place where they would not be looked down upon by the society that was establishing itself. So a lot of our westward movement was, in the year 1809, this is after the Lewis and Clark expedition. Clark is in St. Louis as the Indian administrator for the Missouri Territory. They are trying to get to the Missouri River and cross over where Charity feels she will be safe. 
Now, they have many adventures along there, and Charity turns in to be quite an avid girl, and she is reunited with her horse. So it became a story of a girl and a horse that's growing up. It's very much a juvenile coming-of-age novel for her and also for her friend who's helping her. He's a little older, and he's a little more savvy about the wilderness and how they have to approach people because his Indian heritage shows, and while she's blonde and blue-eyed, she can fit in easier than he can, so they sometimes have to move separately in their quest to get across the Missouri, the Mississippi. Uh, your River. audience, would you, would you say it's primarily directed at uh, young ladies, or is this something that would uh, transcend age and gender? Well, yeah, I hope it does that, because when you bring that up, would appeal to young ladies, most of the publishing industry assumes that if we have a young male protagonist, everyone will read it. Boys and girls both like Harry Potter, correct? But we never assume that a boy would read about a girl and the things a girl can do. And I was very outspoken in the novel about a girl traveling through the wilderness and having to deal with female problems that we don't talk about openly. But she has menstrual cycles. The Indian boy shows her how the Native Americans handle that. It's a very forthright book. It doesn't speak down to an audience. So I found that adults enjoyed it as much as, as the teenagers I wrote it for. You had to do some research on this, obviously, to get your facts uh, in line with the story. How long did that take, and was that just something that came naturally to you? Well, I, I think anyone who teaches literature and has majors in, in literature studies and teaches at a high level is constantly putting history in it. And students with job and saying, Mrs. Brock, you should have been a history teacher. And I would say, no, to understand the history, you must know what was being written at that time. But I did know the Melungeons and was interested in them for a long period of time. The Osage Indians live in the area of Missouri where I live, and they were pushed out by the famous Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition because he was afraid of them. They were such ferocious warriors, and they had held their homeland a very long time. Now, the year 1808 is marked on maps as a year of the Osage secession, but there was no such thing. The Osage were not a combined tribe where they had one high priest. They were made up of many, many elders, and each group, each each village had its own leaders, and they were one. One was the sky leader, and one was the earth leader. And these little old men, as they call them, had to meet and discuss everything they did and come to agreement. Because in the Osage world, it was more important to be in harmony than to be right about something. And this is a new idea to charity, and she likes it very much. Can I be in harmony with nature? Can I be in harmony with a black man who's a freed slave running from Tennessee? When the year 1809 comes around, Tennessee starts looking at freed black men and trying to put them back into slavery. So they pick up characters along the way, and when they do reach the banks of the Mississippi, they enter, enter the homes of the French pioneers that had come down from the Ohio's all the way from Quebec all the way down the Ohio water system to the banks of the Mississippi. There, she learns about the voyeurs. These were the men with the red shirts, and they ran the river traffic during that year. And there are fabulous books about this. And we know they were crossing three major rivers, and I had to go back and research those rivers and when they would rise and what kind of year and how they could cross them. And the river crossings were very difficult. But the climax of the book comes with the crossing of the Missouri and realizing when she reaches the other side that she is, at this time, reunited with her horse. She has many friends. They are minority people in America. They're not, you know... It may be very true that Lewis and Clark opened the West for us, but they did terrible things to the Native Americans who were under their control later. So I put them on the far side, on the west side of the Mississippi, to figure out where to go from there, because that's where America went. We obtained the Missouri Territory by a presidential edict. He did it without asking Congress. Jefferson just brought in that 800,000 acres of land to America, gave it to us, and then people went out to explore it. That's, that's a fascinating bit of history many people don't realize as well. It, was there a, an underlying message that popped through from the story after you crafted it and put it to print? 
Yes, I think there is, and I'm not sure that I was aware of it as I went. The one overlying message is that women and young women are far stronger than they're ever given credit for. And I go back to probably the most important book written about World War II, which is The Diary of Anne Frank. And anyone who has read that, taught that, looked at students as they assimilated this knowledge of what a fabulous, brilliant young woman she was and how she died, you have to realize that the strength of any nation comes, not just from the heroes, not the men who we pin the medals on, not the men running the government, but now we're looking at a time when we can honor the young women, the middle-aged women, the older women that passed on knowledge because they are what made America strong. What scene do you think is going to stand out to the reader when they take a look at Sunpath? I don't know. I think perhaps the journey is a journey for the reader. I found that for most people, they got a lot of information on the journey, but when they reach the Mississippi, she's reunited with her horse and able to control this this very large horse because he was Virginia bred. And all they would have along the Mississippi were small bred Mustangs brought across the river from the West. Her ability to control her horse, to control her life in several aspects. She saves her Native American friend from being overrun by a very evil man by the use of her horse and the use of her herself as a brave young woman. But then I do think that the crossing of the Mississippi is very important because you have to plan for those crossings. The Mississippi starts up in Minnesota. It's fed by two major river systems, the huge length of the Missouri River and the Ohio River burst into it north of where she is crossing in southern Missouri. So they need to get across, and the time frame was the hardest to research. It had to be before the first weeks of June, basically, because the big rise would come at that time. I love the fact that you have done research and tried to make this historically accurate. Marcia, what are your short- and long-term goals with this Sunpath story? This project really might have just been something that somebody said you should do, so I did it. But now that it's written and now that I have copies to pass out or to sell, I find more enjoyment in just seeing how people react to it. Some people want to be nitpicky about historical facts, and I left them no room for that. (laughs) I did my research too well. Um, I just think it's the sort of book I would have liked to have been able to read when I was 14 or 15 and a young girl running wild on a horse in the Missouri Ozarks that would tell me it's not just the young men of the world who will go out and change it. The young women of the world will bear the children, they will make the journeys, and they will know in their hearts the journey they must make themselves. Sounds like a movie of the week or maybe a big screen movie might be uh, in the future. What do you think? I'm not a real fan of movies. That's a horrible thing to say, but I'm just trying to reorganize the massive amounts of books in my own home. And very few books ever transpose to movies well, although I will give Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove, which was a Pulitzer Prize winner. That was done wonderfully for a made-to-television movie. True. And it was also about a young growing-of-age novel. Sun Path, is there a sequel in the works? I don't know. Uh, older people, the younger people who read it seem to realize that Charity has made her decision when they finally get across the river. And there is discussion about what has happened when the big rise has come and the village they left behind. They have to press west. Older people say, well, I want to know what happens next. I know historically what happens next. I know that it is a horrible time for the Osage because uh, Clark in his own desire to rule the Missouri Territory hires the Chickasaw and any other migrating Indians to take bounty scalps of the Osage and practically run them into extinction. It would be very hard for me to write that. Exciting read already, just in its own content, Sunpath. Author Marcia Prock has joined me from Missouri. Marcia, where can we get copies of your book? Copies are available. Uh, I'm making them available in limited edition online, and you can 
you can look my name up on Facebook and message me anytime. I'll be glad to send out copies that way. I also purchased enough for people to read online. I didn't publish online for civil reason. It was my story, and I'm more interested in putting it in the hands of people who would enjoy the history and the story of a young woman's adventure than I am to make money. Excellent. Thank you for sharing your background information and uh, your journey of getting this to print, SunPath. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Blueprint for a Literate Nation, How You Can Help. And joining me to discuss the book that's been authored by Cynthia Coletti is one of the co-authors, Dr. Richard Long. Rich, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you very much, Jay. This is an extensive read, uh, 668 pages. I'm sure it took a while to get completed. To share the, the background passion not only of you as a, uh, an educator and as a person of, uh, uh, of education, but also that of Cynthia. Well, uh, Cynthia opens the book with a discussion about kind of what was a shock to her intellectually but then as you go very quickly into the book, uh, you find out that her passion is to be helping uh, children like her own and uh, who had difficulty learning how to read, were clearly capable uh, people, and uh, the frustration that, that she felt and ran into as she was trying to negotiate a very complex process uh, that our school system is. And um, so that led her uh, through uh, her professional and her business career uh, to take the ideas that she learned in business and apply them to the education sector. And she began looking at uh, what do we know works, what has been proven to work, uh, and then finding about these enormous barriers we're having. Uh, And she was shocked to find that there's a high number of kids who are out there who are weak and are struggling readers, essentially. They're struggling learners, you, you know, you, for economic purposes, for English language learning purposes, uh, dyslexic or specific learning disabled. And, and she coined the phrase seeds kids because at the core, they all need a teacher who has knowledge about how to teach these kids how to read. Absolutely. Without reading, of course, uh, everything else is, is they're locked out of. How did you, you begin this process of uh, collaborating on this work? Uh, is this something that's been going on for a number of years? You have several contributors to this, this work and to this 668-page book. Uh, how did it begin? Well, um, Cynthia had worked on an earlier book, uh, which I also contributed to, and she f- found that it was uh, only part of the story. And, 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 this, and so she began working on this rather long version, which is essentially in 
three major parts. Uh, one is identifying that there is a problem, and it isn't just a problem for these kids. It's a challenge for our nation, both in terms of the viability of our democracy, uh, but also our economic ability to compete um, in, in an ever-increasing uh, world economy. Then uh, to, to talks about what what should be done, and she looks at the research, and uh, uh, she has over 400 um, studies that have been reviewed by scholars, and we call this adjudicated, um, so that we know that the methodology is sound, the conclusions make sense, and it isn't just one person's idea of a good idea. Rather, she's brought together by a massive review. Uh, and then uh, the, the, the final part is a model of, of how to take uh, what we know and to change our laws, because education is a public uh, endeavor. Uh, it is primarily the responsibility of the states, and they, they pass laws, regulations, and then they implement. And what we have found is that uh, they tend to only look at a couple of important elements, but there are at least nine um, critical elements out there that, that Cynthia's book addresses that relate to um, instruction and various components to make to make us successful. Rich, there have been many studies done regarding education, the repetitive learning process, and other types of approaches. What do you feel is the key to motivating students to become passionate learners? Well, it's, it, that's a, really the core of the issue, and that is that each child uh, has some distinct strengths and weaknesses. And unfortunately, we've gotten into the habit of thinking that there is just one way or just one, and, and you know, it, it, in the literature it's called the silver bullet. Right. If we only had the silver bullet, we could uh, then wipe out illiteracy and everything would be fine. Well, as it turns out, that um, some learners are uh, uh, have some very distinct uh, qualities, and other learners have very different ones. And if you, as a, in a in a classroom or a, or a school, if you have a a philosophy about a specific way that works, you're going to reach somewhere between. Uh, 60 and 80 percent of those kids, you're not going to hit all of them. And we find that it is using a evidence-based approach that matches what the kid needs with what the kid has and then um, presents the material in that way. So it, it isn't, for example, that every child then needs the exact same approach. There are vast degrees of differences, and unless we have teachers who have the professional knowledge to draw from um, and the time to implement that and the, and the material to go along with it, uh, they're not going to be successful. Isn't there also a correlation? I know that usually when there is an education system or school district that's failing the biggest or first thing that's mentioned is we need more money money being thrown at education doesn't seem to work what were your findings there well uh, money is a tool so it's if you're doing something poorly throwing more money at a problem is like is essentially wasteful if if you uh, decide that you are going to change what you're doing and you're going to, uh, let's say, for example, um, you realize that your teachers need to, to be exposed to the five uh, elements that the National Reading Panel reported, and, and they are uh, phonemic awareness, phonics, uh, fluency, comprehension, and uh, vocabulary, and if if you've decided that you, your school, your teachers haven't had enough emphasis on that, well, you are going to need money to do the professional development uh, th that's going to take the turn around. So 
it, it's like any other resource. Um, you can have the, a, a really good idea about how to change things and improve things, but you need time to do it. You also need resources to do it. You also need good account assessment systems to tell you how the child is learning and, and what things you have to change. Rich, who is your audience? The Blueprint for a Literate Nation, how you can help. The you, who is the you in your book? It is all of us and any of us. Uh, Literate Nation is working to and using this book to try to reach anybody who considers themselves a decision maker. That's a family member, that can be a school board member, a legislator, a governor, uh, an administrator, and, and teachers. All of those uh, communities are have a decision-making role. And so we, this book, in a sense, being so long, gives information to the parent about what they should be looking for in their school, to the teacher about what they should be looking for from the research to apply in their school. So there's, um, we, we view this as a tool for decision makers, and, and in many ways we're all that decision maker. How would you introduce this book to our listening audience and uh, get them interested in buying their own personal copy of Blueprint for a Literate Nation? Well, the short version of that, Jay, is that uh, Blueprint for a Literate Nation brings together a, a wide range of critical information on what needs to be changed, why it needs to be changed, and how to make the change. And so if you want to be part of a solution, this book is going to give you the tools to do it. One of the phrases that is noted in your book starts off like this. We are in charge of a million tomorrows, putting the responsibility back on the reader. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, we all have to uh, take responsibility for where the schools are today. I mean, there are... School districts out there, for example, who want to change from, you know, this classroom cookie-cutter approach, one-size-fits-all, to a much more personalized approach where there's an integration of computers, there's an integration with teachers, there's an integration with parents, but you get a great deal of pushback because it doesn't look like the classroom that we all grew up with. And, you know, so part of, part of what we have to understand is in order to make a difference, we've got to do it differently. And um, that means all of us have to change how we think about school. This is a complex issue, uh, Rich, and a complex topic. How do you feel your book will have a positive impact on our education system? It, well, there are a lot of really good books on uh, education policy now. Um, I teach a course uh, uh, in the summers on education policy at Mississippi State. Uh, I use distance learning to do that. And, you know, when I put my book list together and I look at what's out there every year, it's better and better. Our book is, is part of a movement where we're not only, though, talking about what the problem is and what the problem has been and what the solution should be, but how to make that change happen. So it's, you know, it's, our book has in it more ingredients to make a much better broth. They can make a more balanced and uh, educated decision once they read your book. Well, what, we sh what you should be able to do when you've completed the book is to be able to walk into your school and have a much richer conversation to say what's needed. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, um, I couldn't read, and I was put in a special class before there was special ed for all these kids who were having trouble learning. And, um, you know, what, the, what they told my mom was I was a nice kid and my mom kept saying but he can't read teach him to read mm. 
and unfortunately, we still hear that today. That that parents are 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 saying, you know, no, you got to teach my kid how to read. That's what's important here. And this book will give the the, the uh, parents some tools and also the educators some tools. Fabulous. A very important topic and uh, certainly some wonderful solutions that you've outlined in your book. This one titled Blueprint for a Literate Nation, How You Can Help, contributing at a contributing author, Dr. Richard Long, has been my guest. Cynthia Coletti was the uh, primary force behind getting this book published. Where can we get copies of this, sir? Well, it is available online at Amazon, and you, in fact, we've made it... Uh, it available for a dollar ninety nine if you want to download it. If you want to buy a hard copy, I think it's 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 retailing on Amazon for about eighteen or nineteen dollars. So we we we've priced it uh, it's so that it uh, it gets the information out there. Incredible, and you do have a website also that you can refer folks to. Yes, and on that website uh, we have many uh, papers, suggestions, and and, and events. Uh, the papers uh, cover specific issues related to instruction and related to to reading, uh, especially for our SEEDS kids, our high-need kids. And uh, that's www.literatenation.org. And you also are welcome to uh, subscribe for free to our bi-monthly newsletter, Catalyst. And we chose the name Catalyst with the distinct idea about all of us being in, in the mix for change. Fabulous. Uh, Rich, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story and also sharing the background of this particular and important book, Blueprint for a Literate Nation, How You Can Help. Thank you again. Thank you, Jay. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.